everyone, my name is Venetia Asari. And I am Abdel Kudus Bukhari. Today we will be discussing about the contribution and impact of the Pan-African University on production of knowledge in Africa and its impact on the formulation of development policies as well. Since the colonial era, the Western knowledge has dominated the knowledge production system of Africa and this has greatly influenced its policy decision-making processes. The Pan-African University was established in 2013 by the African Union to claim development autonomy through knowledge production and also to achieve its vision of an integrated, prosperous and peaceful Africa driven by its own citizens, representing a dynamic force in the international arena. To achieve this vision and sustainable development for the continent, the AU is currently guided by a strategic framework known as Agenda 2063. Agenda 2063 is a 50-year plan that was adopted in 2013 and according to the AU, it is Africa's blueprint and master plan that would transform the continent. It entails seven main aspirations and several goals for the continent. One of its goals include bridging the educational gap between Africa and other parts of the world, through enhancing higher education and harnessing the potential of youth across different African countries. In line with the AU's vision and Agenda 2063, the Pan-African University focuses on five thematic areas and consists of five institutes across the different sub-regions of Africa. These institutes are the Institute for Basic Science, Technology and Innovation in Kenya, the Institute for Earth and Life Sciences in Nigeria, the Institute for Governance, Humanities and Social Science in Cameroon, the Institute for Space Science in South Africa, and the Institute for Water, Energy and Climate Change in Algeria. Although the Pan-African University consists of five institutes, we will only focus on the Institute for Water, Energy and Climate Change, which is POWERS, in Algeria. As higher education is often seen as a key instrument in driving growth and development around the world, we will be highlighting the impacts of POWERS on knowledge production in Africa and how it has contributed to enhancing the water, energy and climate sectors of African countries. We will also discuss about the challenges it has encountered since its existence and propose mechanisms it can adopt to improve and overcome these challenges. Today, we have three alumni from the Pan-African University Institute for Water and Energy Sciences. They are Sapon Hamon Antri, who is a PhD student at Sandok Institute of Technology, Ireland. Thanks, Kudus. My name is Sapon Hamon. I'm, I'm from Ghana and I'm a power alumni. Welcome, Hamon. Our next guest is Judy Ngungi, who currently works with UNEP in Kenya. My name is Judy. I am also a power Alumina. Welcome, Judy. Our next guest is Chinedu Nivo Miracle. Chinedu is a PhD student at the Open University. Thank you, Kudus and Venetia, for this invite. Yeah, I'm Chinedu. I'm a Nigerian, also a graduate of Powers. This is a very interesting topic, you know, the issue of decolonizing knowledge production in Africa and some of the loopholes and flaws. So I think it's something all of us can relate with, and I hope we have a very insightful and um, relevant conversation. Thank you everyone and welcome once again. Based on your past experience of powers, we would like to find out your opinions on what barriers you think make it difficult for powers and power as well to achieve greater autonomy over research agendas and climate change, water and energy. If you have any specific examples as well, that would be useful. Well, um, what I'll first say is 
powers is one of the greatest ideas on the African continent you can think of in line with the agenda um, 2063. Um, it tries to highlight the critical aspect of the creation of not only powers, but the power institute as a whole. It's just phenomenal, but the major problem now has to do with translating what exists on paper into reality. I think um, the question as to why the challenges, I would say, when I first went to power, um, the first thing I heard was um, Agenda 2063, and I tried to read more about it. So in, in terms of um, the Christian um, religions, I was baptized in the ideologies of Agenda 2063. So that's where I got my first perception. Then I realized that beyond what even existed, this is an overall vision of power and the African Union as a whole. So when things were even tough, I, I could still see beyond what existed, and I was looking into their vision. But unfortunately, when there are discussions about um, Agenda 2063, it's always more of a political statement. So you have people come to the Institute to make presentation and they only talk about it, but they don't walk the talk. So many students get discouraged in that sense. And Agenda 2063 as a whole becomes more or less like a, a laughing stock, so to say. So we have uh, the first problem with understanding what we mean by Agenda 2063 and the lack of understanding about this concept, this vision, and the reason why powers exist. This is the first um, step towards all the problems that I believe my colleagues could speak more to. So the fundamental problem that exists has to do with the definition, the understanding, and the inculcation of the aspect of Agenda 2063 and why powers is in place. And the reason why we're having all the troubles is the inability of the institute to tell students, let students understand this vision and to build whatever they want to learn around, whatever action decisions they take around this agenda. This is a vision which is not like something that is supposed to be realized next week or next year, but a long-term vision. And once students get to understand this vision, that's where they can call for accountability, that's where they can raise their voice and ask for the right things to be done. The inadequate um, explanation and, and uh, exposure to the agenda is the first reason for all the problems that we have. Thank you. Okay. Um, let me just uh, jump in. Thank you so much, Hamon, for, you know, that very uh, insightful expose on powers. And, of course, you know, highlighting the importance of powers and the entire Pan-African University platform to Africa's development. So I think you've done much of the intro, but if I am to go straight to talking about the barriers, you know, barriers of knowledge production and um, the barriers power faces when it comes to having autonomy to her research agenda, I think some of those barriers are, are, are not just... Um, unique to powers, but they are barriers that are general in the African climate. They are barriers that all African scholars face or the barriers that Africa in its entirety faces when it comes to knowledge production. And I think I would come from the general to the specific, you know. Um, you know, if you dig it deeply, you find out that most times in the general African sense, we are still basing our knowledge production on the legacies of colonial power relations. You know, you know, uh, uh, um, it, it continues to permit the production of knowledge about Africa, her, her people, and her societies. You know, so it's not just um, about what we are looking at now, but we have to 
traced it down the line where it has been like what was handed over to us. You know, sometime in the 1960s, uh, Kwame Nkrumah said something, you know, highlighting the importance of African-centered knowledge. And of course, a Nigerian writer, Cloud Ake, also advocated for indigenous knowledge production. But if you look at the, the Africa as it stands now, with the way our knowledge production has been, it has mostly been predicated of, on what non-African writers wrote about Africa. So bringing it down to power, you talk about the, um, the assignments we did in many, many of the courses. And most times we end up using both papers and uh, books that were written by Europeans, even though it may be a course that pertains to Africa. But many of the materials we were citing, you know, were from people who do not even know Africa as much as we do. So you see that there is that, um, um, there is that borrowed, I don't know, borrowed legacy we are still using in our knowledge production. And then coming down again to power, there are some other barriers that even though at the present, it seems difficult to overcome them because the, the power's arrangement was also supported by the likes of GIZ, uh, the German government and all that. So it is understandable to argue that in some way, these uh, countries, these supporting countries, even though they are not in Africa, they have some vested interest you know, it could be explicit or it could be subtle. So uh, another thing I want to talk in terms of the lecturer selection, you know, in Powers, we see a situation where some of the lecturers who came to teach in Powers are not African lecturers. They are people who were trained in Canada, in Germany, in Pakistan and all that. And most of, many of them were also from these places. So this is a barrier because, um, you know, as Chino Achebe would always say, you cannot know my story better than I do. So um, these lecturers, even though on a general level, they may try to teach us on the basics of maybe energy policy or climate change or gender, whatever. But at the core of their training, there is something that is not Afrocentric, you know. There is something that is lacking. Where they are coming from, it is not Africa. So coming to teach Africa, you know, for an institute that, that seeks to achieve the Agenda 2063, the Africa we want, there are certain things that uh, maybe Africa-trained lecturers will have to tell about Africa that these other people may not be able to talk about yeah so i think this for now these are the few barriers i can i can talk about and of course planning again um there is a problem with planning you know the the, the situation where uh africans who are trained in power in powers or all the power institutes are allowed to go to say europe or any other country after the after their studies, when the primary interest of creating powers is or should be ensuring that the knowledge produced in Africa is African. But you see, if somebody like me, for instance, I'm doing a PhD in UK, you know, with the knowledge got from powers and many other African institutes. So I think um, powers can gain more autonomy or some of these barriers are the, the fact that there are no good platform or structure to ensure that the Africans that are trained in this institute are also retained in Africa to multiply our endogenous knowledge production. You know, um, I will still add more to this, you know, as the conversation develops, but these are the few I can talk about now. Thank you. You have really 
uh, spoken out loud of some of the issues that I wanted to highlight, but in the backdrop of the last point he has given, in, um, Power was created for the main, or the main goal was to have Africans solve their own uh, problems or challenges that they face. So based on our indigenous knowledge, we can get top students in Africa enrolled in the program, get the scholarship, and then they can go back to their countries and be able to solve uh, the problems that each African country faces. So far, I know we have had more than 30 different nationalities of students being enrolled in powers. But um, the point Shinedu has given that now the students lack, let me call it patriotism towards the continent. So they shift towards the Western uh, countries in the name of either looking for greener pastures or gaining more knowledge. And in the process, we erode the goal that powers or the power institution was based on. Uh, for example, now in Kenya, we are facing drought. And what has happened is we have trained experts in water and in energy, and also other power institutions have trained other students in different, maybe I know the power are more in engineering. So you find these students who have been trained and now in different, Af different Western countries, and uh, the drought issue here in Kenya now is coming to be solved by other, let me call them expertise from the Western countries. So what we have done is an exchange of knowledge, but we have defeated the goal of what Agenda 2063 was all about. So in that case, we find, I would call it a major barrier because even if the institution tries to educate the students on the importance of being Pan-African and introducing courses like uh, History of Africa into the, into the courses, there's still the ideology that what is in the West is better. So as long as that ideology is still there, the goal is defeated. Also, one of the major, major problems when it comes to research is how do we get uh, open sources data? For example, I remember Hammond was one of the co-chairs of a conference known as Open Conference that was done 2019. The main purpose of the conference was to educate the students or the researchers of the importance of making their work more open so that other students who follow after us are able to access the data, able to build up upon what the previous researchers have done and also make the data available in Africa because one of the key challenges of uh, Africa is lack of data. So if these students are able to be given the sense of loyalty towards that, then we are able to overcome most of the challenges that come with research and also solving the problem. Thank you so much. We also want to ask about your opinions on how the knowledge being produced of powers has impacted Africa's growth and how it is reflected in the policies being made. For example, with the Ujima project in Tanzania under Inyarera in 1973, the project was implemented to encourage new methods of farming as well as to address the sparse population. However, this project failed due to many reasons. One of the reasons it failed was because it was centred on Western cultural practices, meaning the policies that were implemented were framed around the Western conditions rather than Tanzania's conditions. In line with this, since power was established to allow Africans to develop their own solutions, do you think that the knowledge that has been produced by powers is reflected in the policies on water, energy and climate change that are currently um, being implemented within Africa? 
or do you think it's still dominated by Western concepts and ideologies? Well, um, I think um, Western ideology is still dominating, and um, I want to start from where um, Judy ended. So I'm here, I was trained in Africa in powers, and I'm currently working on droughts in the Republic of Ireland, and I've done extensive study on how to communicate droughts during, before, and after. And sometimes I look at my data set and the sort of knowledge that I've gathered from across Europe. And if I go back home to my native Ghana, I want to even implement this. I'll not get the audience to do that, let alone to go to Kenya, where drought, uh, Kenya now becoming a, a hotspot for drought. So you ask yourself, is our knowledge being um, recognized? The answer is no. I go back to Ghana, nobody cares about powers or anything, but the African Union agencies and institutions which are supposed to open their doors for us to liaise with them to implement what we we don't say we are experts and we know everything but at least they should give us the opportunity to start something but we don't have it and it comes back to i wrote something down our research case studies so i'm going to give a quick example um when we're about to do our master research there were some topics that were brought obviously from outside, and we're also given the chance to choose what we wanted to. I don't know, for one reason or the other, I had to choose Niger. I didn't know French that much. I've never been to Niger, but I went there. Until today, I'm still working with local collaborators trying to work on um, energy communities, and there is a huge EU project I'm working on, and I had to include Niger as a case study. And then I had to defend Niger. And then some, I remember um, one of the collaborators from Canada was, why so much interest in Niger, not Ghana, where you're coming from? Like, Niger is where I did my master thesis. And I can speak more about energy in Niger than I can even do in Ghana. And so, you see, based on where I situated my research case study, it is now producing more results outside of even powers. But normally you find that um, where we have to choose research topics or others. Nigeria wants to go to Nigeria. Kenya wants to go to Kenya. Tunisia wants to go to Tunisia. So at the end of the day, I go back to my native country. The same problem I know from birth. I try to pretend to solve it within three months or four months because my research fund is even going to come late. So what happens is I'm still going to do that traditional copy and paste, try to jam or manufacture results just to pass. But if we want to go by the fundamental reason for which powers was created, then students should be given at least one year to do intensive research. And we should be strategic to map students in a way that we don't necessarily have to be from Kenya to go and study or take a case study in Kenya. Imagine Chinedu going to um, um, Kenya to do a research on, on energy and, and business startups. He has no influence, he has no um, 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 alignment, or he has no attachment to anybody. He'll be able to come out with the real issues, he'll be able to document what is exactly happening. And so tomorrow, Chinedu will now have an, a Nigerian experience and a Kenyan experience, and he'll be able to work within these two countries to ensure that the common problems are being solved. But we leave students to take whichever research area they want to, and just to defend it. And even if students go the extra mile to try and do good or excellent work, they are faced with a challenge with funding. And I believe my colleagues here can talk about the stress they go through just to receive their funding in terms of ticketing and everything. So we, we basically do what I call 
um, 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 finish and go. Like just come and study, get paid, do assignment, get your degree and go, and that is all. But it shouldn't work there. I should be making conscious effort to ensure that after passing out from your master's and with your thesis, in two, three years, what comes out of your thesis? What is the progress? Are you translating the thesis into a project? I'm sure there are many colleagues who have worked on drought in Kenya, but it has remained at the thesis level. Now Kenya is experiencing drought. What is being done? Are these students being called upon? What are the local African Union agencies doing to identify these students to say that, guys, you were funded by the member states in Nigeria for two years. This is our problem. What do you think can be done? Until we're able to do this, then the knowledge we learn and whatever we study in powers just become like any ordinary local investors that we attend. And that comes to defeat the overall purpose of the Agenda 2063. Because I did that in Ghana after my master thesis, I had to go and work with the Netherlands Development Foundation. And I happened to attend a workshop. I started talking and people were amazed. And then they asked, where are you from? Like, I'm coming from Algeria in North Africa, funded by the African Union. And that is where people even got to know that there is an institute like that in, in Algeria or in North Africa. But my colleagues will attest to the fact that even to send an email to the African Union or even to our local institute and to get a reply, it takes months, if not years, to get that reply. So at the end of the day, you feel like giving up. You feel like going to Europe to expand your horizon. You feel like looking for other alternatives rather than bringing back the knowledge that you've accumulated in two years into solving local problems. I look at the thesis that most of my colleagues worked on, and these are fundamental um, problems being tackled through these thesis. All these students need is the push and the push. Is a call or an email to say, come to this office, let's discuss how we can translate this thesis into something productive. And if you look at the Chinese economic model, that is what they've been doing. If you look at the China, um, Japanese, they've been doing that. I was in the Netherlands recently, and you realize that the students do master thesis, and when they finish, even international students have an exceptional um, visa extension if they want to start up a business or implement what they have learned. Can that be said about being in Nigeria after one year and willing to stay, um, after two years and willing to stay for one year just to expand and put into practice what you've learned or the thesis that you've developed? So overall, what I want to say is one of the key problems is our research case study and the agenda or the reason behind our research. It looks like just submit something, pass and go home. But until we, re we redefine our research to mean that do a research and make sure in five years' time this research translates into solving the local problem that you identify. There wouldn't be any knowledge from what we're gaining from powers. Thank you. Wow, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Hamon. You know, you you touched so many facets of, you know, the issues we have with knowledge production in Africa, and specifically powers. Um, especially the aspect of, you know, the fact that Africans don't regard the knowledge produced in Africa. You know, and you made mention of the difficulties that many of us students face, you know, when it comes to assessing data. And, you know, that is also akin to my own experience at the moment. You know, I tell people that I'm you know, and of course, they know from my name that I'm in Nigeria, and then I'm studying renewable energy startups in Africa, and my case study is Nigeria. 
and I struggle so much to get access, you know, to have an interview with any of these uh, startups or even the policy or regulatory or financial institutions that deal with renewable energy. But sometimes I'm tempted to believe that if it were to be somebody that is a British, for instance, coming to Nigeria to do the same thing that I want to do as a Nigerian, that he will have a lot more ease, you know, getting access to these organizations. Yeah, and that brings me back to the question about whether there is the influence of Western, um, you know, the Westerners or something in the policies. Yes, it is so much dominant here because that is what, to a very large extent, that is what so many African governments believe in and that is what they respect. So you get to see GIZ, USAID, Power Africa, um, and all of these international organizations and donor organizations coming to implement renewable energy projects and um, climate change projects and gender projects in Nigeria. Even when um, well-qualified and skilled Nigerians are there, uh, because the government believes that people from outside, people from the West have the better idea of doing things. Even when they didn't grow up in Nigeria, they don't know the topography of Nigeria, they don't understand the demographics of Nigeria. But, you know, somehow the government believes that when these people from UK or US or Canada or Germany, when they come to do this thing, they will do it better. So I think it, it, it has to do with mindset. That mindset has to change. If we are talking about knowledge production in Africa being worthwhile or being more efficient, the mindset that whatever comes from the West is better has to be jettisoned, you know. It is not always so. We can, we can make use of our local content. We can make use of our local knowledge who are very well qualified to do these things. And they can do them well. A situation where somebody from UK comes to Nigeria to develop climate change or energy policies, um, um, I would want to believe that it will not exactly mirror the realities of so many of the rural communities in Nigeria. You know? So yes, there is still a very much high influence of the Western countries on the policies um, in Africa in general. Thank you. Just want to add in, um, everything in Africa is usually politically pushed. And in the process you find, if you are going to develop anything or if a project is going to be put up, then there are always political, okay, political um, hands in it. So when it comes to developing of policies, it becomes a great challenge, especially for us who are just students, to come into um, back into our countries and try to change or put in the knowledge we have gained. I'm sure maybe Hammond or could or Neville or you could use once you come back to Africa, you'd like to change or bring in the ideas you have come back, you have brought from the Western countries. But at the backdrop of everything in Africa, it becomes political alignments or political ideologies and uh, in the process whatever you even if you had a good idea it's completely rubbed off uh, i think you have mentioned a project in tanzania uh, i know here in kenya students like um, my colleague known as Ilian, she had a project known as ukulima kijiji ukulima the main purpose of the project is to try to empower the farmers into more climate friendly uh, resistant, drought resistant crops.
crops and how we can improve and get away from the challenge of always relying on relief food. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges she faced is finding. And once she got the finders and got the, um, the farmers involved, how do you keep the project like that going on? Uh, the idea is great, but how does she borrow the idea and put it into a manifesto of a political leader who is trying maybe to change or bring new policies? So it becomes a great challenge in how students who are coming now from powers or any other Pan-African institution are able to push for their agendas into, let's say, change-making or, yes, change-making ideas and change-making uh, policies. So that is the main, can I say, it's more, it's bigger than power in itself, but that's the main challenge with Africa as a continent because everything has to be politically pushed and that's where we lose it. Thanks very much, Judy, for your contribution. So looking at um, funding of powers in terms of their research and then contribution to sustaining the institute from outside Africa, do you think this funding has effect on the research that we produce at Powers? Um, I'm sure my other colleagues can also say something, but you know, there's usually this Nigerian adage that says that he who pays the piper dictates the tune. It may not be every time, but most of the times. It may not be, it may not be very explicit that you know, the funders may have a particular interest on research. But most of the times, if you also look at the body language, you find out that, you know, there are certain things, there are certain ways the, the research or the supervisor, especially if the person to supervise that research is coming from the funding organization. For instance, if there were some, uh, somebody, uh, maybe a trained professor in Germany or any of these countries or any of these organizations where this fund comes from and they are supervising the research, the topic may actually be even about something in Africa, but there are subtle undertones, you know, that um, the supervisor may want to introduce in the topic that draws back to the country or organization from where that funding is coming from. And, you know, the, the, the issue of getting funding from international organizations is actually very dicey, especially when we look at Af Africa, you know, as a rich continent that we have all the resources and we actually know that the amount of money that you know that is spent on recurring expenditure in our respective countries is big enough to even float so many research institutes and actually fund our research for instance african union you know uh, um all the security votes and all the allowances you know that the politicians receive if we are being sensible enough it could actually um, go into something serious when it comes to research and funding African scholars. But because this don't happen, you know, we are left at the mercies of international organizations who try to fund these things. And um, um, uh, most times I don't think it's to our interest because, you know, watch the pattern also in powers. Many times what happens is that after that support, after that um, research that comes from that funding, Many of these students that are funded eventually move to that country. As an instance, about five to six powers graduates are currently working with microenergy in Germany. And in some way, when they were doing their thesis, you know, this organization also played a form of support, either in funding the research or giving them an opportunity for internship. 
And this now gives them that interest, you know, grows their interest to go to these countries and maybe continue their studies or work as consultants in this organization. So it may not have a very short-run implication, but in the long run, yes, the fund that usually have something to gain. Yeah, thank you. Wow, thank you very much, Mr. Chinedu. Um, not more than what Chinedu has said. I think they say be aware of the two Kangarian gifts, and uh, Chinedu is right. Whoever finds you also dictates how you ought to do certain things. It's not necessarily seen in the powers uh, how powers is run, because we are told the money comes from African Union, and by the end of the day, we lose we lose we lose students who are able to do much more for the continent back back home, and they go back to working in other in other continents. So that in itself, I won't say it's a directly you can directly link it or it's a correlation to it because I haven't really put much research into the matter, but I think in a way we lose students who are able to do much for the continent back into other institutions that are able to offer either internship or offer research topics. Uh, in the process, we, we forget what the institution was called upon to do. Yeah, great. Thank you. There is this popular adage that who feeds you controls you, so it's not too explicit the the um, benefit the sponsors are deriving from but i know sometimes even the thesis results where it's being sent who analyze it who chooses what from what as they were and then you find giz implementing a lot of projects across africa and some of our findings from our thesis certainly must be one of their foundational um step in in in, in funding project across board. but uh other major thing we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact is there is still not that openness to absorb the capabilities of the um, students train so if microenergy picks like five power students imagine they don't want to pick them the question is can our local institute pick them or are they willing to so um, um, i think at this point um Fund, those funding powers cannot be blamed in any way. We should rather be blaming ourselves for not creating that absorptive environment for these smart guys to live and to have the opportunity to work. And until that happens, we're still going to have the exodus of excellent students moving to Europe and across the world to pursue personal interests and to follow what packages funders will have for them because at the end of the day, Nobody cares about them that they even completed um, 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 purpose in the first place. Thank you. Thank you so much for your contributions. It was really insightful. So just to conclude this session, could you please briefly summarise your main recommendations for powers in terms of how they can improve or the way forward for them? Um, to summarise, one, powers should try and develop better structures that will return the African scholars that are trained in powers so that the knowledge that is produced in powers will also be used to develop Africa. Secondly, um, powers should encourage you know, the students to make use of materials developed by African scholars who know the topography of Africa more than anyone else you know, in doing their studies, in their writing of their thesis. Uh, there is an already asymmetrical relationship between the global north and south 
in terms of uh, the, the papers that are accepted, the, the, the ranking of the scholarly output from Africa and the rest of the world. But whatever happens, we know that there is geopolitics at play there. But within the continent, powers should encourage Africans and African scholars to make use of materials that are also developed by indigenous Africans, you know, in writing their thesis or in, in conducting the research, you know, that they aim to profess solution to Africa. Yes, um, I think those are the few things I'll use to summarize. For me, I'll just say data, data, data. Um, we, there's a saying that goes, data is the new oil. Um, any country that is able to provide or able to make use of the data it has, has an advantage over the other or information. So once um, powers, since it is in the field of research, is able to make use of the data that students bring on the table or the research that students are able to gather, that is how the continent is able now to attain Vision 2063. Until we get to that point, we need to remember that Paris is, I think, less than 10 years old, and Rome was not built in that day. We are still trying to work into the strategies of how to change Africa as a continent. The vision is not lost, so we are still, as students, wherever we are, uh, as alumni, as we move on to different uh, facets of our life, I think some of us might decide to go into political careers. And for me, I feel since Africa is more politically um, aligned, that might be the only way we might be able to bring up new policies. But in the small ways that we are able to do as students, as researchers, maybe coming up with nonprofit organizations in our communities or working with organizations that are on the backdrop of trying to help and solve these issues, that is how as alumni in energy, in water, and in climate change, we're going to be able to make changes. Um, the final thing I'll add to the incredible recommendation is the fact that among ourselves as um, past students of powers, we should try to encourage um, collaboration and to share opportunities that we, we come across. And then um, even among um, our colleagues from different countries, there are some projects that might be happening in different parts of, of Africa, you could recommend colleagues who are serious and you believe they can do their work. And so out of this um, smaller collaboration and unseen um, 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 teamwork, we can we, we can make headways beyond what platform powers could offer to us. Thank you. Thank you, Chinedu, Judy and Hammond for your recommendations. Thank you all for also highlighting the challenges faced by powers. Hammond Sapon in the beginning highlighted the poor understanding of Agenda 2063. He stated that while he was a powers, Agenda 2063 was more of a political talk rather than a reality and explained that the inability of the institute to teach the students about Agenda 2063 was quite problematic. It creates a gap between the human resources being produced at powers and achieving the goals. Powers must try to incorporate Agenda 2063 in its courses and also ensure that the students they're training know and have a clear idea of what they're being trained for. You all also highlighted the dominance of Western concepts in the courses at Powers. Chinedu stated that the teaching material cited a lot of content that was from non-Africans and knowledge was borrowed from people that do not know about Africa 
or people that were trained abroad. He captured the phenomenon and highlighted the importance of making the reading list and selection of lecturers more inclusive of Africans through the saying by Chinua Achibe, which is, you cannot know my story better than I do. You all also drew attention to the impact of external funders and powers. Chinedu referred to the saying, he who plays the piper dictates the tune, while Sapon also stated that, who feeds you controls you. You all stated that the external funders may have their own agendas, which somewhat influences the way the institute currently operates and also suggested that powers should try to utilise the funding from internal sources rather than seeking funds from external sources. Judy also highlighted the issue of human capital flies from the continent and emphasised on the need for powers in the AU to retain the knowledge it produces within the continent. The purpose of POW was to train the youth to address the developmental problems within the continent. However, these trained students are leaving the continent the knowledge that is being produced at Powers is somewhat neglected and the so-called experts from abroad are being chosen over the trained experts that Powers has developed. It seems that despite the knowledge being produced in Africa, outside knowledge is preferred and there is a mindset that what comes from the West is better, hence not making use of the local knowledge. There is a lack of acceptance and openness by Africans to absorb the knowledge that is being produced. To conclude, we have said that African countries must make use of the data that is being produced by the students in these PAL institutes and must also prioritise local knowledge. African countries, as well as the AU, must make provision to ensure that the resources produced by the PAL institutes are retained and PAL, as well, must reduce reliance on external funding. Thank you all once again for joining us today and for sharing your views on knowledge production in Africa.